0: I'd like to invite you to please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ruth, which may take you a minute to find, but the good news is we're not going to judge anyone's spirituality by how long it takes you to find a book of the Bible. Uh, After the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, comes Joshua, then Judges, and then Ruth. If you get to first and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you've gone too far. All right. Ruth comes right after the book of Judges, and today we begin a four-part series on the book of Ruth. Here's what some commentators say about this book. Dean Ulrich says, it is a literary masterpiece that humors, intrigues, and exhilarates the reader from start to finish. Daniel Block, who perhaps has the finest commentary on Ruth, says this, as a piece of literature, Ruth is one of the most delightful pieces ever produced. And Robert Hubbard says, this book is literary art and theological insight at its finest. One of my uh, favorite courses that I took in college, I went to Kutztown University and took a class there on short stories. And I absolutely loved that class and introduced to the world of short stories. Well, some have said Ruth is the most beautiful Short story ever written. Its literary qualities are extraordinary and its theology is profound, and therefore we should prepare our hearts to be delighted and prepare our hearts and our lives to be transformed by the truth of this book. Ruth is a surprisingly ordinary book, it's not a book of miracles and angelic appearances and thunder from heaven. It is an ordinary story of family, daughters-in-law, grief and hope, poverty, widowhood, work and love. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of Radical kindness. The events themselves took place over a thousand years before Jesus was born. So Ruth lived in the 12th or 11th century B.C. That's after the Exodus, after the wilderness wanderings, after the people of God entered the land of Canaan. That story was transferred uh, for hundreds of years through reciting the story and then was written much later, perhaps in the 7th century B.C., And it is the only Old Testament book named after someone who is not an Israelite. Our sermon title today, and we do pray and anticipate how God will meet us and speak to us in His Word. Our sermon title today is The Bitterness of Life and the Blessing of God. The Bitterness of Life and the Blessing of God. And I trust I have given you enough time to find the book of Ruth. And we will look together at Ruth chapter 1. This is God's holy and authoritative word. All of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Through his word, God is equipping us for life and is making us more like Christ. That happens through this book. It happens through this chapter. And so let's listen together. In the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said her two daughters has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Merah, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. May God bless the preaching of His Word. There's a lot to the opening line of a good story. Some say that first sentences are doors into worlds. So for example, once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. With that we enter through the door into the world of Narnia. Or Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive. were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much introduces us to the world of Harry Potter. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Is how Charles Dickens begins his classic, A Tale of Two Cities. The book of Ruth begins with this opening statement. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So from the opening line, we know that this story is... To be read in light of the book of Judges and that these events took place during that same time period that the book of Judges records. Judges is a book of social chaos, a book of violence, moral anarchy, sexual immorality and all manner of evil because that's what those days were like. The book of Judges gives you the national view at this time and it is an absolute dumpster fire. Is what you have in the book of Judges. You might remember around 10 years ago, we had a guest speaker in. He was a seminary professor. And that Sunday morning, he announced his title and text from Judges. And he said, My sermon title is Plumbing the Depths of Our Depravity. And that sermon, as it went on, and that text itself included some really Vile and awful things, shocking sexual misconduct, gang violence, death, and dismemberment. Some pastors were taken off guard. Some pastors, uh, some parents were not happy. My inbox came alive, and a good time was had by all. Um, This is the book of Judges. The the women of the church, many of you know, just finished in their Bible study studying the book of Judges, which yes makes them. Absolutely the coolest and most epic women in the world. You know, like, my wife's just getting together with some ladies to study some warlords and stuff is, like, is what these last few months have been. And Megan has loved, my wife Megan has loved being in a Bible study uh, led by Sherry Stair and Jannie Bard. Uh, so, those of you who have been living in the book of Judges, this is perfect timing for this. The book of Ruth has been described as a sort of appendix to Judges, and what we discover is that there are characters in Ruth who are the opposite of what you see in Judges 19 through 21. So, the book of Ruth happens during this dark time, but zooms in to tell a beautiful story of God at work in a particular family. It is, as one commentator says, a burst of heavenly sunshine in the dark, bloody period of the warlords. And even this is reflecting on that reality. Even that demonstrates to us that however dark our world may be, however dark our lives may be, whether it is personal suffering and loss or whether it is cultural decline and evil days, however dark it gets, friends, we too can shine in the midst of the darkest night. And that's what we will see in this book. Before looking at chapter one, I want to give you three primary themes to look for throughout the entire story. Redeeming love, divine providence, and godly example. So first, redeeming love is gloriously displayed in this story. And as we see redeeming love, it will lead us to celebrate God's redeeming love and his great kindness in how he has rescued us and in how he provides for us again and again. The most important word in this book is hesed. The Hebrew word hesed meaning steadfast love and faithfulness. It's a word that's used in verse 8 of Chapter 1, it's translated kindly. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Alec Motir says this word, Hesed, combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. The warmth of the fellowship of God combined with the security of the faithfulness of God's steadfast love. And faithfulness, and this is the redeeming love of Christ for us. This story, we will see, points forward to Christ in some glorious and surprising ways. He is the ultimate Boaz. He is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. He is the one born in Bethlehem of the line of David. Redeeming love. Second, we'll see in this story, divine providence, which is... God's good ordering of all our days, His providence, He's in control, which means we can trust Him. And so we will see the providence of God over all things, and it will lead us into a deeper trust in the Lord and in all His ways. Someone once said, I trust Chick-fil-A so much, I don't even check my bag. And if they get my order wrong, I just assume they know what's best for me. <laughs> we want to be brought to a deeper trust in the Lord. And that's what the doctrines, doctrine of the providence of God does. The providence of God means God is active. God is sovereign. God is involved. God cares for you. It's an interesting thing about Ruth. And I encourage you to read this. Uh, it takes 15 minutes to read through the the entire book, so try to find some time today or this week to read through the book in one sitting. One of the things to notice is that the narrator mentions God only two times. There are other characters in the story who mention the name of the Lord, but in terms of what the narrator describes, only two times. Once in chapter one, verse six, in ending the famine, and then again at the end in chapter four, verse 13, in causing Ruth. To conceive, So the story is bookended by God giving grain seed at harvest and giving human seed in a child. God gives fertility first to the land and then to Ruth. And those bookends are communicating that God is involved, that God is in control from start to finish, every moment of the way. This means you can trust him. There are ultimately no accidents in your life. God is sovereign and we trust in his providence. And then third, we will see godly examples, models of mature character. We will see and learn from examples of kindness, loyalty, and justice. We will see a beautiful portrayal of true manhood and true womanhood. You want to know what does biblical manhood, biblical womanhood look like? I commend to you a study of this book. We'll see deep trust in God in the midst of suffering. We will encounter the radical kindness of God from the Lord and on display in the lives of His great saints that will then shape us and lead us to be a people of radical kindness in our own generation. Now, Ruth chapter 1, the first five verses serve as an introduction to the story the author is setting the stage for the drama of this story there was no fam. there was a famine in the land we're told which there's irony in that in verse one because bethlehem means house of bread there's no bread no food in the house of bread bethlehem was that part of the promised land that had been allotted to the tribe of judah a man and his family leave the promised land for Moab. Moab is a place that doesn't have great connotations in Scripture. Verse 2 says that the name of the man was Elimelech, which interestingly and importantly means, my God is king. Picking up on the judge's theme of the need for a king during a time where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. His wife is Naomi. Sadly, tragically, Elimelech dies. Their two sons marry Moabites. Then tragically, in time, Naomi's two sons die as well, leaving three widows behind. That's what we're introduced to in Ruth chapter one. Three widows who had suffered enormous loss. And I believe God desires to use this passage, our text today, Ruth chapter one, to minister to minister to any who are experiencing bitter circumstances in life. Life is hard. And just as Naomi grieved the loss of her husband and two sons and lived in a time of famine in a distant land, so we too, as we travel through this broken world full of the effects of the fall, so we too know trial and heartbreaks of many kinds. And so we need to hear this word from the Lord that we might be strengthened to endure, that we might be comforted, that our hearts might be grounded in the truth of the word of God, that we might trust in him more deeply, that we might not be shaken by the great trials of life, but that we might remain steadfast through it all. One of the things I pray most often for the church is that we would be a church that remains steadfast through suffering. It's in fact one of the earliest sermons that I preached back in 2008 when I became senior pastor here. Was that we would be a church that suffers well. Not a church that it avoids suffering altogether because that is impossible in this world. But we want to be a church that when suffering comes into our lives, we're able to hold fast to the truth of God, we're able to cling to His Word. And we're able to abound in faith and in hope. God's using this story and Ruth 1 in particular to accomplish this in us. And so we open up our hearts and our minds to receive from the Lord. Two points, the bitterness of life and the blessing of God. First, the bitterness of life. We can imagine sitting down with Naomi and hearing her story told through tears. Naomi knew a life of great hardship. First, she and her family experienced famine, which most of us can't even imagine. We just sort of skim over that, yeah, time of famine. No, it was a time of famine. They were not able to feed their family. They had no food. They did not know where their provision would come from on a day-to-day basis. And then they moved far away from home. And then we have this story of Naomi grieving one death after another. She's left with no protector. She's left with no provider, making the events all the more tragic. You have to understand, uh, widowed women were especially vulnerable in these days. It meant, inevitably, material poverty. It meant no land. It meant no one to support her. And it meant the same for her daughters. They They are weak and powerless. They are vulnerable. They are lonely and abandoned. Put yourself in Naomi's shoes and your sorrows, your fears, your temptations would be very great indeed. Naomi learns that the famine is over and so after spending 10 years in Moab decides to return to Bethlehem. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for return appears 12 times in chapter 1. It is a returning that is happening. And even one of the things that we see is Ruth turning to the Lord and turning to the people of God. Verse 6 makes clear that the hand of God was in the famine coming to an end. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she sets out with her daughters-in-law, but she then appeals to them to go back to their extended families, to be able to remarry, to be able to have children. And in this very emotional scene, full of tears, and we can imagine it, Naomi makes her case for why they should not come with her. One daughter-in-law, Orpah, stays behind, but the other, Ruth, joins Naomi, clinging to her, verse 14 says, which actually is the same word used in Genesis 2 in the leaving and clinging to, Ruth clings to her. Normally, it's not advised to argue with your mother-in-law, but in this case, Ruth prevails and verses 16 and 17 are some of the most moving verses in all of Scripture. Ruth looks to Naomi in this moment, of tears on all faces, and says, Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. This would not be an easy road. Ruth is an outsider. She's a Moabite. Deuteronomy 23 prohibited Moabites from worshiping in God's house and prohibited Israelites from being friends with Moabites. Ian Duguid, in his commentary, says Ruth would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. That's what what Ruth can expect in this moment. But what Ruth will do in this chapter is, is she will be calm in Israelite at heart. She will not worship the gods of the Moabites, but give herself to worshiping the true and living God. It is a picture of conversion. And here's where we start to see what... What makes Ruth such an extraordinary woman? Oh, to be a church full of people like this. And every one of us can learn from her godly example. Commenting on this scene, John Piper says, here we have a picture of God's ideal woman. And we will see more of her quality later. What do we see? Faith in God that sees beyond present bitter setbacks. Freedom from the securities and comforts of this world. For some, all they ever care about is the securities and comforts of this world. They are obsessed with the comforts of this world. Here we see freedom from the securities and comforts of this world. Courage to venture into the unknown and the strange. Radical commitment in the relationships appointed by God. Piper says, this is the woman of Proverbs 31, 25, who looks into the future with confidence in God and laughs at the coming troubles. Ruth counted the cost. She counted the cost, and there was something far more important to her than a husband and the guarantee of material possession and a life of ease. What is that something? What is that someone? Your God will be my God. To be a Christian is to say, Christ is enough. He satisfies me completely. Take the world, but give me Jesus. He alone is our desire. He alone is our treasure. Your God will be my God. And she says, your people will be my people. Because if you're truly committed to God, hear this, If you're truly committed to God, you must be committed to the people of God as well. And I love this this beautiful picture, this attachment, this commitment, this loyalty that so many in the world today do not have. It is such a beautiful thing when someone says, these are my people, you are my friends, and I'm not going anywhere. Your God will be my God, your people will be my people. Glorious truths Spoken by Ruth in the midst of the bitterness of life. But how's Naomi doing? Naomi, Naomi is struggling. Uh, most of us have been there, even if our suffering has not been great. She says, verse 13, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So it's interesting. And some of the commentators are far too critical of her. Some of them, I think, are not quite critical enough. She sees the sovereign hand of God in her life and circumstances. That's good. At the same time, she sees that hand as being against her. And so Daniel Bloch says, she does indeed ascribe sovereignty to God, but this is a sovereignty without grace, an omnipotent power without compassion, a judicial will without mercy. We also have a window into how she's doing in the last scene in the chapter, when they come to Bethlehem, when the town is buzzing with excitement. Naomi is back, could this be Naomi? And she says... Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty, she says, has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. You see here, she had stood over so many graves, and it was more than she could bear. Calamity, bitterness, emptiness. How is she doing? It's mixed. We... And here's one thing that needs to be said we do not fault her for being honest about the difficulties of her life there is there is overwhelming pain in the loss of a loved one and in many of life's trials and Christians are not those who somehow minimize that pain or try to deny the appropriateness of mourning and lament we we believe we have those categories massively Functioning in a fallen world. Naomi is clearly devastated and upset at how her life has turned out. Peter Lau and Gregory Goswell in their biblical theology of Ruth say this about Naomi's lament. So you have these two laments from Naomi. One's there in verse 13, the other in verse 21. They say this, that these two complaints are addressed respectively to her daughters-in-law and the women of the town instead of to God, shows her sense of abandonment by God and perhaps also her lack of faith. These laments show that Naomi cannot understand the purposes of God in her life, but also that she feels that God's presence is hidden. She has experienced major personal tragedies, so much so that she feels empty, Primarily, her sense of emptiness is because she has lost her husband and two sons, but this emptiness is accentuated because she feels it is evidence that God has abandoned her. This is the great temptation, and every one of us can learn from this. How will we respond, brothers and sisters, when we encounter the bitterness of life? What temptations will we face? We are... We are so inclined to believe lies. The enemy of our souls, Satan himself, is a li- liar, the father of lies from the beginning, and all he does is spouts lies. Some of them half-truths, all of them lies. And we in our weakness and vulnerability can so easily buy in to the lies that then feed unbelief. What temptations will we face in the midst of trials. We need to get ready. We need to be on guard. And we have to be honest that sometimes we think about God the same way Naomi spoke of him. The greatest danger we face in the midst of tragedy, grief, and distress is denying the heart of God for us. That's the greatest temptation we will face. And Far too often we judge God's kindness to us based on whether he gives us the things we want. And if he doesn't, oh, how easily we give in to self-pity and to bitterness. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. I hate my life, and I don't understand how a good and loving God could do this. I want, to, I want to speak to those, and it is a difficult thing because there are many who have, like Naomi, like Ruth, who have suffered far worse than I have, but I want to speak to those who have, like Naomi, been battered by the bitterness of life and who have perhaps been tempted to bitterness or perhaps have grown bitter. It is, it is a hard road you have walked. It is a hard road that you now walk. And God's desire for us, here it is, is, and this is what he by his spirit is teaching us. He wants us to learn to be able to experience bitter hardships that are very real without that producing a bitter heart. We will face bitter hardships, inevitably, but God's desire is that that not work into our hearts in such a way that we give in to bitterness. And God is on a rescue mission today to save us from the destructive power of bitterness. The great question is, how will you view God in the midst of your suffering? Ian Duguid says this, like Naomi, when the circumstances of life go badly for us, we are tempted to assume that it is because God is out to get us. And this can happen in trials great or in trials small. He says we easily view God as the cosmic policeman, just waiting beside the highway of life for an opportunity to pull us over and give us a ticket. When life is hard, even when difficulties are a direct result of our own sin, we we swiftly attribute our pain and loss to the harshness of God's wrath. Whether it is closed doors in our career path, financial difficulties, or shattered relationships, our first resort is often to blame God's harshness for our pain. The result of that Attitude, he says, in our hearts may be that our lives become filled with such bitterness that we completely miss the providential marks of God's continuing goodness to us in the midst of our difficulties. Brothers and sisters, how will you view God in the midst of your suffering? And that leads to our second point, the blessing of God. Naomi is right to see God's involvement in these events, but wrong to deny God's goodness. Naomi's only thought, constantly in her mind, the Lord has brought me back empty. And there is a sense in which that is true, but but we also want to say, at the right time, and with the right heart, Naomi, the Lord has not brought you back empty. Lift up your eyes. You are, you are seeing only your loss. And most of us cannot imagine your sorrow, but God is at work. Naomi, your daughter in law, loyal, is standing next to you. God Himself is still with you. And so long as He is near, you are not empty. Naomi, God has brought an end to the famine. God is providing food. And if you knew the future he has for you, if you could see the kinsman redeemer he has for you and Ruth in Boaz, if you could see, if you could only see the way your life is being used to join Ruth to the people of God and one day bring an even greater redeemer, the savior of all humanity, if you could see, you would not despair and you would not say you are empty. Christian, do not allow bitterness and self-pity to rob you of seeing the blessings of God. Don't miss, don't miss the providential marks of God's continuing goodness to you. The hymn writer William Cooper says judge not the lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face a face that is for you a face that is seeking your good and his glory in your life the image is sometimes used of a tapestry that god is weaving my Dear friend Angie lost her husband and created a powerful performance around that very idea, the tapestry. God is weaving a glorious masterpiece but we can only see the underside with all of its tangled colors, with all of its loose ends, with all of its knots. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to us. But God is, is making something beautiful and God himself is at work in every bitter circumstance. He's at work to give you a future. He is at work to give you a hope and therefore we together can trust in him even when we don't understand his ways. To one degree or another, we will all have Naomi experiences. We will all encounter a bitter providence. And we will all at times sense that God is distant. And in those times, in our Naomi moments, we must resolve to turn once again to the cross of Christ where God speaks his loving kindness over us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. He emptied himself that we might be full. And you might say, I am empty You might say, the hand of God is against me. How has he blessed me? Oh, friends, God has blessed you by giving you himself in Christ. That's what he's done for you. I was thinking about this. Ruth's loyal commitment to Naomi is a picture of Christ's commitment to us. He has pledged himself to us and will never let us go. Other friends may come and go, especially when they encounter our sin and our weakness, but oh, what a friend we have in Jesus who gave himself for us upon the cross, who has pledged himself to us forever. God has given you himself and has given you fullness of salvation, and God has blessed you by giving you his people You look around the room and you look at those he's placed in your life. Just as Naomi had Ruth, isn't it true that God has given you a friend to walk with you and to grieve with you so that you can truly say that you are not alone? Many of us have experienced these kinds of friends So precious and dear they are to us who say, I have been here for you and I'm not going anywhere. I've shared shared your grief in the past and I will continue to walk with you in the future whether we flourish or whether we suffer. I'm gonna be here. What a gift we have in the people of God. And God has blessed you. He's given you himself. He's given you his people. And he's given you a future. One day, Naomi's Emptiness would be replaced with fullness. One day, Ruth's insecurity as an outsider would be replaced with security and belonging. And I can assure you this day that your story is not over. God is not finished with you yet. The harvest is coming and maybe just about to begin in your own life. You don't have to give in to bitterness. One of the things that I love about this church family is that in the midst of facing great sorrow and great loss, there are brothers and sisters whose lives stand as testimonies to the triumph of God's grace because you're still standing and because you have not given in to bitterness. You have not abandoned the Lord, rather you are trusting in His ways. Let us be inspired by the example, not only of the saints of old, but saints in our own day who provide such compelling examples for us. And as we learn from their example, let hope rise up in our souls. Let hope be the anthem of our soul. God intends that in our emptiest moments that we would experience the riches of the fullness of Christ. He is able. He is able to turn our bitterness into blessing. He's able to turn our hopelessness into hope. He is able to turn our grief into gladness. He is able to turn our famine into fullness. Act one comes to a close and Naomi is bitter, but hope is in the air. And verse 22 ends on a glorious note of hope. The chapter begins and ends with bread. It's a famine at the beginning, but it's the barley harvest in Bethlehem at the end. The grain for bread is ready to be cut. Hope is in the air. And Ruth is going to meet someone in the barley field who will change her life forever. The story continues next week. Come back. Friends, may we be a people of hope. May we be a people who trust in the Lord. Romans 15 verse 13 says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May God do it in our lives. Amen.